Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least and a better spot to settle. My brother said they are married. Hey everybody, welcome to the show Community Spread. I'm your host Kevin Lundell, and I just wanted to wish everyone a happy Black History Month. Here at Community Spread, we are go- are going to do our best to celebrate Black History Month by having every week someone coming at you from our local Black community to share with you either their life experience or some really important Black history. So you have that to look forward to in the upcoming weeks. Also, you may get a bonus podcast coming at you next week. So be on the lookout for that. It's a topic that is in the news a lot right now, one that uh, is really at the forefront of culture wars that I feel like community spread can have a voice in shaping that that current conversation. On the podcast today, we have Winter the Poet, and many of you will recognize her awesome voice as the artist who read to us Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And she did such an incredible job with that. But what we didn't get in that episode was an opportunity to hear from Winter about her experience and about her experiences in life that led her to come up with that amazing poem titled, When We Say Black Lives Matter. So we're going to get an opportunity in this podcast to hear from her, her life, and also get a chance to her for her to explain what she was thinking about when she wrote that. And we're going to go through each of those lines. It's going to be a really good time. But what I wanted to do beforehand was just read you her bio because she is quite accomplished as a poet in really a short amount of time, because although she's been writing poetry since she was eight years old, she just recently has started performing it and really excelling at it. So Winter the Poet is a queen of many crowns or hats. Winter is a wife to her beautiful bride and best friend of 10 years. She is a mother to their handsome baby boy and has been a poet since the age of eight, having her first poem published in the second grade. Poetry was the first time she felt like she could express herself with meaning and purpose. Winter made her debut in the 2018-2019 Salt Lake City Slam Poetry Season and made the team in the same year. She creates poems about justice, healing, self-love, queerness, and the power to overcome. Living life one moment at a time through love. She is the 2018 Ogden Pride Poetry Slam winner and a member of of the 2019 Salt Lake City Slam team, where she went on to be a 2019 Salt Lake City Pride finalist, a Rust Belt team finalist, and a Southwest Shootout team finalist. So with that, our conversation with Winter the Poet. Look how far we don't came, we made it to the slam to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a prize. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. Well, hey, everybody. I am super lucky to have Winter the Poet back on the podcast with us today. You guys heard her deliver that awesome performance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham prison, uh, and she knocked it out of the park. Winter, it's so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm super excited to be with you all again. Wow. Uh, last last time I was with you all, what an, what an honor it was to read back his letter and share with the listeners everywhere and share with you all. Absolutely honored. So yeah, I'm super excited to be with you and uh, share a little bit about me and what yeah. I do. Well, what the listeners don't know is that that 7,000 word letter that you read, there were parts of it that you read three times <laughs> because oh. we, we were having some technical difficulties and Winter, I mean, you guys heard the energy with which she delivered that. And imagine doing it three times over probably three or four hours. Oh my goodness, 7,000 7, words you say? Oh goodness. That's incredible. <laughs> and those words, like, you you know, those words, I tried to, I was reading through it myself and I couldn't read it through in my mind smoothly, let alone <laughs> deliver it out loud with that kind of performance. What was that like for you? Oh, you know, it was great. It was uh, Dr. King 
I will say he was a very well-spoken man. After reading that, I already knew he was well-educated, but after reading that letter, holy moly, was he well-educated. There was some words in there that, whoa, I was like, okay, Dr. King, I see you, man. I see you, man. They need to listen to you because you're saying some good stuff in this letter. So yeah, it was it was incredible, but that man, he was well-spoken, I tell you. He was- Without a doubt. He was Without very well-spoken. And uh, you talk about reading it smoothly. Those, uh, those technical difficulties uh, did help sometimes because it gave me a chance to reset. <laughs> it gave me a chance to reset because that man- I, there's no other way to put it. He was well-spoken. Some of those words, my goodness. Absolutely. And we also got to hear you read some of your original poetry, which was when the the poet, the poem that was titled, When We Say Black Lives Matter. And it was super awesome because on Monday, I got to hear you read those words. I got to hear you deliver that poem. And then on Wednesday, on the biggest stage in front of the whole world, we got to hear Amanda Gorman deliver her poem at the presidential inauguration. What was it like for you to see your craft on display in front of the whole world? That was incredible. As you can imagine, full of tears, full of tears, nothing but tears. Um, She did such an amazing job. So uh, Amanda, if this ever reaches you, oh my goodness, hats off to you, uh, young lady, because you made us proud. I have, as you can probably imagine, I have friends all over the world in the poetry community. And that is, that's the one thing that I saw across the poetry community is that everyone was full of tears and so proud of her. So proud of her. She, um, she did, she did us justice. She did us justice. She definitely helped to put poetry on the map even more. Sometimes as poets, we feel like people, they see us and they hear us, but they don't really see us. And um, after that, people understand what poetry is, and I'm so I'm so grateful for that. That uh, it put us it put poetry on a another level um, for everyone in the whole world to understand. Well, you didn't have to be a poet for that poem to bring you to tears. Uh, no, that it did it certainly did for me, and was just so incredibly powerful. And to deliver it. Uh, at 22 years of age uh, on that stage was really uh, miraculous. You, one of the things you told me as I got to know you is that poetry saved your life. And that is the story I wanna learn more about. Tell me a little bit more about winter, growing up, who you are, and let's, let's just start there. Poetry definitely did save my life. Growing up, I grew up in the church, grew up Southern Baptist, in the church. I actually grew up as a drummer. So I play the full set. I've been playing the full set since I was 10 years old. Played in the church for uh, one of Ogden's best gospel choirs for 10 years. So that's how how most people knew me. Um, I've been published as a poet since I was eight years old, but that was always Ah. kind of the, the quiet side of me. Yeah, my first, my first poem was, uh, that was published was called Rainbows, (laughs) Rainbows, <laughs> which leads me into growing up in the church um, with who I am. In my in my culture, if you will, in my religion that I was a part of, it, who I am, um, my orientation was not accepted. And so that was that had a, a big, big effect on my life. So um, the listeners may not know this about you, but Winter is married to a woman. Yes. Yeah. And so when you say that your orientation and growing up in the church, that's, that's what you're speaking to, right? Yes. Yes. I've always been uh, proudly, proudly gay. Always have been coming up young. I knew who I was and I didn't, I didn't feel the need to hide that because I knew I was, I was sure of who I was. Was your Um, poem rainbows at eight year old was eight years old. Was that the underlying tone at eight years old? Yes. Yes, wow. at eight years old. Yes, and that that was my first my first published poem. I knew way back then. I I've known forever, far back as I can think of, of knowing and having thinking for myself. I knew who I was. I knew who I was, and I always stood firm on that. I always stood firm, and so that was that was kind of hard growing up in the church. It wasn't very accepted. Tell me a little bit about so. 
you know, when you when you say growing up in the church, when you're in in Ogden, Utah, everybody always thinks of the Mormon Church. <laughs> right. So, and, and where I grew up. But tell me, tell me a little bit about what a Southern Baptist church looks and feels like here in Ogden, Utah. I think most of our listeners probably don't know what that 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 feels like, what the culture is like there. Very very spiritual uh, background. Very spiritual background. Very a very deep belief in man and woman creating a family very deep belief in that that is that's something that that was preached as far back as i can remember being a little girl coming up in the church i've been in the church i was christened in the church like right after i was born so i literally have been had been in the church all of my life but yeah what very, was it like very... coming up against what was it like coming up against those teachings i mean you you talked you had a poem of rainbows and when you're eight and what were your was there conflict how early did the conflict start with you and those parts of the teachings of the church right away at eight years old something didn't feel right at eight years old i i played with the conflict in my head of this is what I've always learned. This is what I've always been made to believe, but this is how I know I feel. And I know that I can't help it. I know without a shadow of a doubt at 10 years old, at 12 years old, at 16 years old, now I'm a teenager. I know that I know that I know um, in my mind that I am who I am. I know that I've been raised in the church. It's, something doesn't feel right though. You know, I'm I'm learning to believe that that there's something not right about me, about the way that I love, but my love feels beautiful. My love feels complete. It feels amazing. It feels like the the kind of love that I see that even though I may see it with a man and a woman, I feel that kind of love, but yeah. for another woman and that's okay yeah. with me. Yeah. I don't understand how that's wrong. So coming up in the church, it was always a conflict. I, I didn't like paying attention because they're teaching me that everything that I am is wrong. And I know that, that that there's no way. I know that I'm a loving person. I know that I would give my all. So I know that there's no way that everything's wrong with me just because I love women. That's that did that didn't sit well with my spirit. Um, talk about spiritual. That did not sit well with my spirit at all. So I love that. I love how you were able to step outside and um, use the teachings that you had of the church with your spirit and your spirituality and and relate it to your sexuality. Did you, I mean, you, right now you talk about it so boldly and proudly and, and were, were, were you ever having internal conflicts uh, about yourself or did, did it impact you? What, how did it impact you in different ways coming up against those, those teachings? Definitely so, only because my family was so deep rooted into the church, right? So um, I never wanted to be, and I, I would think anyone has this feeling, you never want to be um, an embarrassment for your family, right? Um, with my mm -hmm. family being so deep rooted into the church, I never wanted it to cause an embarrassment for them. And I say that so boldly for them, because even me growing up as, as one of the best drummers in the state of Utah in the church, I, I didn't hide who I, I am. That was another thing that didn't sit well with me, right? All of these churches want me to be their drummer, but they know my sexual orientation. And you sit here and you preach this to my church or to my face um, in church, but then you want my talent. You want my talent, but you're not okay with who I am. And that never sat well with me. You all would, would do anything to have my talent a part of your service, the same service that you preach that I'm wrong and who I am is wrong and who I love is wrong. That was the hardest thing. As I got older, that was the hardest thing to deal with. So much so that I would literally play a service. And then after I played the music part of the service, I would leave because it is, it's hard. It's hard to sit and listen to someone tell you that everything that you are is wrong, but then they'll praise you for your talents um, that you're adding to their service. That, that was hard. Yeah, it's like they want your talent, but they don't want your person. They don't want who you are. And right. that is why I, I, I've, I've felt that um, even in the Mormon church, as I started to become more vocal about certain issues of this, like these, it was like, we like you, Kev, but you know, don't, don't talk about that other stuff that you're really passionate about. Cause that's, that's, uh, 
that's starting to make people uncomfortable and uh, suddenly you just start feeling more and more on the outs of, uh, at least I, I did, on, on the outs of something that you're, uh, you grew up in and you really cared about. Tell me your church. You, you grew up in, in Ogden, Utah. Is what's the size of a congregation there? Is it is it mostly black folks in in the church, or and and what what does it look like? Yeah, um, predominantly um, black, but uh, we had we had a, a mix of. I no longer attend the church. Um, I haven't been a part of that that church or that religion for about three or four years now. Um, it just didn't feel right to me, so. I made the decision to step away, but it was a larger congregation. I've heard that it's not so large anymore, but it was probably a good uh, 100, 100 to 200 people um, on most Sundays. Very large choir, full band. So we had the drums, piano, organ, uh, bass, guitar. Yeah, it was was. It was a good time. Would, it was a good time. I would have, <laughs> I would have, lo- I would have loved to hear that performance. Like juxtaposing that with music in the Mormon Church, it's just like <laughs> I would have, lo- I would have loved to just be in that moment. Oh uh, yeah, and, and, and hear some of the, what you guys delivered and the power with which you delivered it. I'm sure it was incredible. Tell me, uh, how do, how did growing up in Utah as a black woman, how did that shape who you were? Um, you're kind of this double uh, minority threat here in in Utah. Tell me what that was what that was like. It's been it's been rough. Um, being honest with you, it's been rough. There's always always there's always something. There's always someone who's looking down on you, um, no matter how hard you try. I grew up, went to New Ames, uh, ninth through twelfth grade, graduated from Northern Utah Academy of Math, Engineering, and Science. Love the school, but even even going there, right? They say you be smarter. So then you're smart enough, right? You're you're so smart that you can you can take advanced classes or go to an advanced school and you still get looked down upon. It's like you're always trying uh hard to be greater and it's never good enough. And even being in a black family in Utah. You're always trying hard to be greater because your family expects we're black. We're in Utah. They already look down upon us. So you have to be great. You have to be because of that reason alone. You have to be great. Um, So you already have that weight on your shoulders. Just growing up black in Utah, you already have that weight on your shoulders. And then, yeah, it's like there's always there's always more. There's always more you can do. There's always more you can be. And of course, I always want to be my greatest. Of course, I always want to uncover more. But it's like, why wasn't any of this good? Why wasn't any of this good? Why, why is it always more? Why is it, why isn't, why is great never enough? So that, that's kind of the thing. Um, even in, in the work world, in the professional world of, because I've worked in, I've been a supervisor and manager of several call centers in my, uh, my other, my other side of my life, um, in, in my not artist world. And even then, you know, they don't, I've found that people don't like, my intelligence. They they want me um, to excel, but when I show them how intelligent that I am and that I can excel far past what they even thought or required, then that's when it's an issue and they kind of try to pull you back down. Um, you weren't supposed to excel that far. You weren't supposed to excel that fast. And that's frustrating because it's like I'm giving my all because I just want, I just want to give my all and I want to be my best self. But yeah, sometimes you expect it and sometimes you reject it. I hope our listeners are really got to hear that because let me ask you this. What do you think is behind your white colleagues' feelings about that? Why 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 do they do that? Why do they do that? Is it is it overt racism or is it something else? Why why do you think that you were constantly feeling that and constantly feeling like, oh, they want me to succeed, but when I actually do, they, there's some threat there to them. What what was behind that? That's what, you know, that's the question, Kevin. <laughs> that's the question I'm still asking. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you find out the answer, you let me know <laughs> because that is the question that I'm still having because I, I don't understand it. And that's just being honest. I don't understand it. 
me, myself personally, I want everyone to succeed. I want everyone to, to do their best. I, I've never been the type to envy anyone. You know, I I hear people say all the time, I wish this, I wish my hair looked like this, or I wish I've never been that type of person. And I'm so grateful for that. I didn't understand um how how big of an impact that had on my life until um I'm starting to come in my my older years of age. Um, now I finally understand, but I'm grateful for that now. I've never been that type who wanted to be anybody else, who wanted to look like anyone else, who wanted to have the other things that everyone else wanted to have. I've always had my own swag, my own style, my own. I've wanted my own. Yeah. I try to beat my best self. That's how I've always been. So I I don't yeah. understand. I, I honestly don't understand why why people would want to see me succeed and then um, try to pull me down. I would think sometimes jealousy, and then I would hope it's not jealousy. So then I think it's fear, fear of someone being better than you or fear of, but I mean, if you're only trying to beat your best self, then you don't have to have that fear. So I guess because I don't think like that, I'll never understand. I'll never understand. I know, like, I'm glad you shared that experience because it's an experience that people of color tell a lot. And I think it's hard for white folks to because they don't they don't see themselves as overtly racist and they don't they don't see their colleagues that way either. Yet it's an experience that happens over and over and over to people of color. And you know, I one of the things that helped me was I, I read a book called Cast by Isabel mm -hmm. Wilkerson, and she talks about how these this racism is what it, it it's the pillars that hold up our society, and so you know it it is there and we 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 show it in ways that you feel that are are really unconscious and it takes a really active understanding and learning of those pillars to even start to see it and then another step to even start to undo it but like i said it's real it's there you felt it people feel it and we need to do a better job myself trying to create better education in, in society to help us undo those pillars that are just they they just are there it's you know and it's it's unconscious racism is is what it is and i love that you said that kevin <clears throat> i think that's the biggest thing is you said unconscious it takes a conscious effort, and I—that's the biggest thing that um, on my Instagram. I have a um, a, a weight loss um, Instagram that I pr promote wellness and and healthy living, and that's the biggest thing that I I teach to everyone is it's all about conscious living, um, and that that it, I feel like that goes hand in hand here. It's all about conscious living. Um, you know that racism exists, so guess what? It takes a conscious effort. Um, to turn that around. And I try to live through a life of consciousness, um, just being conscious and aware of what I'm doing, what I'm saying, you know, how I speak to people, how I approach people, how I react to things. And it's hard. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. It's hard. It's hard sometimes to be conscious all the time of what you're doing, but that's what it is. It takes a conscious effort because we do know that it does exist. Racism is real. Even if you wish that it wasn't embedded in you. There's some part of it that's in you um, because of history. There's some part of it that's in you. So it just Absolutely. takes a conscious effort to turn it around. It's just being aware of that, being okay with admitting that, and then being consciously aware of that. Living a conscious life. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So when you say poetry saved your life, tell me, were there some hard times that that led up to you finding poetry and what, what, what does that mean? Yes. Um, <clears throat> as I said, I've been writing since I was young um, with, with growing up in the church and with growing up in my family who was um, deeply rooted in the church, my sexual orientation, life was hard. It was hard uh, not being accepted. It was hard um, living in a home where I wasn't accepted, where um, everything, every time something came on, the news about, you know, uh, gay rights. Um, it was talked about harshly and um, this was right in front of my face. So I had to write through it. Um, literally, I had to write through it. I couldn't express myself. I couldn't talk. I couldn't talk to anyone about it because these were the very people who were making me feel hurt about who I am. So I couldn't talk to anyone about it. So 
Um, I had a, a couple of cousins who I could turn to who who really had my back and really helped me through some of the hardest times of my life because because my family didn't accept me, my immediate family. It started to become hard to accept that I wanted to be honest about who I was. Um, it wasn't hard to accept who I was, but that I wanted to be out open and honest about who I was. Um, sometimes it was like, well, maybe I should have just kept it hidden. Maybe I should have just stayed quiet about it. And that was hard. Um, who wants to hide their, their true selves? No one wants to. So that was hard. I had to write about it. Um, there were some times where I wanted to give up, literally. And I, that's the hardest thing to say now. I'm so grateful that um, I don't feel that way now, that um, my life, I know that my life has so much more meaning and purpose now. But there was there was times that I wanted to give up because of of hurt, because I wasn't accepted for me. So I had to write through it. When I say poetry saved my life, literally poetry saved my life. If I didn't write, I know that I would not be here. Um, I can say that for sure. Poetry and drums. Sometimes I had to just go and beat it out, literally, just beat it out. And then in 2017, um, I went through a horrible breakup. I had been in a relationship for a little over a year, and it was great for the most part. But then I went through a horrible breakup. I had just gone through a horrible surgery um, a couple of months before that. That breakup, it kind of, after that surgery, I was terrified of surgery, went through my first surgery. There was complications. Um, I was in the ICU. And then uh, a couple months after that, went through that bad breakup. So when I tell you I was broken, um, I was broken to a new level. Had to start over with everything. And I said, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. Um, I was to the point where I wanted to give up. I felt like everyone had turned their back on me. Everyone that I loved and, and knew or thought that loved me had turned their backs on me. And so I turned to poetry, the one thing that never, ever, ever turned its back on me. Um, I turned to poetry. I picked up my pen because I couldn't pick myself up in that moment. I could not pick myself up. I had no strength to pick myself up. So the little strength that I had to muster up, I picked up my pen and I started writing. And I just wrote out everything that was hurting me. And I get teary-eyed even talking about it. Um, I wrote out everything that was hurting me. And it started turning into poetry, just my thoughts, just writing out the hurt started turning into poetry. And then I heard about um, the lighthouse in Ogden. I heard that they had a poetry group. I had no one to turn to. I was so lonely. I'd just go and sit by myself and write most of the time. So when I heard about this poetry group called uh, Poet Flow in Ogden, um, I was like, okay, I, I mean, I'm by myself anyway most of the time, and it's poetry, so why not go and try it out? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be brave. I heard it was on Thursday night. Went to Poet Flow, and goodness, I love Poet Flow. They will forever have a very deep place in my heart. What a journey. I I think it's your story is very interesting because it's one we hear often um, in the LGBTQ community that the, a lot of times the religion you grew up but you grow up in has this immense impact on on your life. And most of the time I see that in a form of like shame and self-doubt, but I don't see that coming through you. You always were just so proud of who you were and it never exude that same sort of shame but what it did do is it started to alienate those that you love around you and so even though you weren't didn't internalize that about yourself you ended up on an island and lonely and and in a, in a dark bad place because of it definitely so definitely so and I think that that was the issue um with other people not with me as you said is that I I wasn't I I didn't see any because I, I didn't see any um, any harm in it. I've always said this to people when I talk to them about who I am. I said, um, before I came out, you all didn't know. And you didn't know because it never changed the person that I was. Um, who I am, how I love people, the way that I treat people, that's never changed. That's never changed. I am who I am. And so my sexual orientation has, has nothing to do with 
the way that I love people or, or who I am as a person. It's just who it's who I choose to love. Um, it's who I'm attracted to. And who am I to tell you who to love, right? I know you're madly in love with your wife. Well, what if I told you that there was someone else that I choose for you? No, that's not right. Who am I to tell you who to choose? Who am I to tell you who to be with? So you find uh, this poetry uh, society at the, at the lighthouse. Is that what you said? Yeah. And is this at the point where you start um, performing your poetry? And tell me about that world and how that how that impacted your life as you started getting into competitions and things like that. Yes. So the lighthouse was the first time that I was on anybody's stage to perform my poetry. And it was the most terrifying moment of my life, Kevin, (laughs) (laughs) the most terrifying moment of my life. Um, I first shared my poem um, called Home, and um, I'll actually share that poem with you uh, later on. Share that poem, um, and everyone, I probably was shaking in my voice. I felt like I was, but everyone's like, no, you did really well. Everyone was so loving. I feel like that is the only reason that I got on another stage. It's because everyone was so loving. Everyone was so supportive and loving. And so that's what helped me get over that fear because people probably won't believe me when I say this. They never do. But I am like one of the most shy people in the world. I'm super shy, even though I get on the stage all the time and I turn into someone else. Um, That's winter. That's winter. She's Uh she's here now. That's winter. Shakira (laughs) is super shy. So, (laughs) so yeah, I'm grateful. Um, I'm so grateful for Poet Flow because that's the first time I touched the stage and then um, they're so loving, like the the Poet Flow community is so loving that I wanted to keep getting on stage. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, you guys, you guys like my poetry, even though I thought it wasn't that great. Okay, let's share some more, right? So I kept sharing there and I started fine-tuning some things and um, started talking to other fellow poets, which was amazing, you know, having a community where you can bounce off other ideas and other poets looking at your poems and saying, this is cool, but maybe switch this around. And I love, I love constructive criticism. Please tell me, how can I make it better? Absolutely love that. So that was awesome. Um, and then I'm like, I love okay, that. I think I got the hang of this. Let me, uh, let me go to Salt Lake. And I heard there were some slams in Salt Lake. And so I'm like, huh, let me go to Salt Lake and try competing with this. I like this. <laughs> and uh, I, so I went to my first slam in Salt Lake, probably about four months into performing. And I started performing at the slams and I started placing really what, high. What's a and, slam? Is a slam, a, 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 tell me about a slam. So it is a poetry competition. So you have three minutes to do your best stuff, deliver your best poem, whatever you have three minutes there's three rounds so that first round they give you scores there's three random judges that are picked out of the audience and they score your poems literally score you from a one to a ten you know how well they think your poem was um how it touched them you know the word play in your poem all of that they score your poems and then you know according to the score you can go to the second round and then according to your score then in the second round, sometimes, depending on how many people are in that competition, sometimes it's a cumulative score from the first and second round. Um, sometimes you just have a new score in the second round. And then, yeah, you you score that round. Whoever has a, the highest score that round, it's usually like the top three of that round, go to the finals and then there's a winner. And there's, there's a cash prize. That's what people don't understand. There's cash in poetry. Cool. Like there's a cash prize 90% of the time. So how did you Um, do? How did you do in your first one? uh, My first one, I made it to the final three. Really? Um, My first one. Yeah. My first, my very first one. That's what I said. That's what I said. I was like, (laughs) I didn't even know what I was doing. Um, So my first, my first one, I made it to the uh, the final three. Um, My second one, uh, I was, I was like a runner up to the winner. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. Um, so then that's another thing in the Salt Lake city slam team. In that scene, you get to compete all year for a chance to be on the team. Um, if you make the Salt Lake city slam team, then you go on tour for poetry for that year. 
Um, so you get to go to different different states, different different cities with the team and perform poetry, compete um, in some huge competitions. So I was, I didn't know, this is the thing, I was going down there to compete just to like get the experience. I didn't know I was competing for like that spot, right? So this whole time I'm starting, like my score is adding up, right? Cause it's, they're adding your score up for all these competitions. Uh-huh. So my score is adding up. So one time I go down to one of the slams and they're like, Hey, you're like close to being able to be um, in the finals for the team. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't even know that was adding up. Let's do this. Yeah. I want to compete tonight. So then I won a slam. I won a slam and I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. So um, I, I won a spot like to actually compete in the huge slam. Um, there was a huge like regional slam down in uh, somewhere down south I can't even remember now past Salt Lake somewhere so yeah there was that huge slam you had to compete in that slam against three rounds against the best poets in Utah literally these poets have been competing for years Um, some of them had like eight and ten years under their belt and here's little old me I'm like nervous I'm like uh I just barely started performing and here I am a year into this performing stuff, not even a full year. I wasn't even a full year into it yet. And I decide to do like one of like, not even one of the biggest competition in the state. Let's do it. So awesome. Let's do it. Let's do it. How'd it go? How'd it go? Went well. I won a spot on the team. What? Yeah. I won a spot on the team. So this was, um, this was the 20, 2018-2019 team um, that I won a, a spot on. We we got to go on tour, um, went to Texas, came here to Colorado, actually where I'm at now. Oh goodness, we went to New Mexico. We went to St. Louis. Um, my team, actually, we placed really well too. We were a first year team. So we're competing against teams that have been competing with each other for five, six, seven years, right? And we're making finals. Like, it's funny. My team, don't get me if you guys hear this, but my team, we, uh, my first competition was in St. Louis, right? It's called the Rust Belt. Um, huge competition competition in St. Louis. I'm super proud because that's the first competition I'm going to that's huge. I'm from East St. Louis. So I'm like, okay, we got to show out a little bit, y'all. These are my stomping grounds. Um Needless to say, we didn't expect to even make finals, right? We weren't, we really weren't prepared to make finals because we're a brand new team competing against these huge teams from all around the world. They called our names. We made finals. Crazy. For a first year team, crazy. It was crazy. We beat out some of the biggest teams in the world um, to make make finals as a first year team um, with barely, barely any practice. So yeah, it was fun. It it's been fun. Um that's so that's so awesome. Fun. I just love, you know, I love like these individual sporty competitions. Like I do some I do like competitive water skiing, like which is an obscure kind of weird sport that you travel and do things at and people don't really understand it. And, but but it's so cool because what I saw was you in a place that, you know, you going through hard times and finding a community and something you could devote yourself to and other people that you could build these human relationships with and started to rebuild uh, the things that you loved and and cared about. And it just had this incredible impact on your life. And I think that's incredible. One question I had for you was like, when you're in doing these slams, one thing I notice about the way these the poetry is performed is is are are they judging you just on the words? Or are they judging you on the performance of it? The the your your voice. Your what what are the other criteria? Definitely judging you on the performance of it as well. So it's we call it spoken word because um, you're not only speaking but you are you're performing your words. So um, when you are really when you let your poetry really take over you your body will move with your poetry yes your body your body will definitely move with your poetry you will feel your poetry and you can't help but to move um half the time like sometimes I try to be still and you can't because the words are just so powerful um and then the the inflection in your voice um it gives depth 
to your poetry. So you don't want to just just read it like you're reading a some old book, right? That yeah. Um, they look at the inflection in your voice and how it how it makes who's listening, how it makes them feel. Um, poetry is supposed to make you feel something. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it does. It, the, the way you perform that, the way uh, you emphasized it, it's, it's the reason why, I mean, all of this background now makes it very clear why you were so good at reading uh, Martin Luther King's letter, uh, because this is, this is you, like this is what you do. And so you're, you're, a, you're a legit pro at this. And so I'm even more uh, blessed and excited that we were able to have you on. So Winter, one of the things that I noticed in listening to your poetry was just how much you can say in so few words. And so what I wanted to do was having the listener have an opportunity to hear a little bit more about what you're thinking about and what you're feeling about as you write those words and a little bit more about what those words mean. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna play a game. It's called, Okay Stop. And we're gonna play back the audio from you performing that poem, When We Say Black Lives Matter. And at any point in the poem, you or I can say, okay, stop. And we will stop and talk about it. Sound good? Okay. Yeah, that sounds perfect. That sounds like, sounds like fun. That'll be fun. Uh, yeah, I'm excited about okay, stop. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. I am Winter the Poet. And the name of this poem is When We Say Black Lives Matter. When we say Black Lives Matter, why do some add the only? Understand it's an open invitation to get to know me. Stop okay, adding stop. your own. <laughs> so tell me, when you say it's an open invitation to get to know me, those words when Black Lives Matter, tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm glad you asked me about that. Um, I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to take it one step back and then I'm going to step forward to that because there's something that's super important to me. Um, um, the line that says, why do some add the only, um, that line is super important to me. Um, and I, I often wonder this, why do some add the only, we, we're not saying that only, we, no one ever said only black lives matter. We simply said black lives matter. So, um, me being a poet, I'm always aware of my speech. And so if you listen to me, um, I'm going to say it just how I mean it. Black lives matter. I'm not saying only black lives matter. I'm saying that our, our, our lives need to matter, to start mattering, because for so long um, it's been shown over and over again that it does not matter. Um, and I am that black life. So when I say it's an open invitation to get to know me, I am that black life that hasn't mattered, that um, I've been shown in situation after situation um, that my black life has not mattered to you. And I would hope that everyone's life matters. I would hope. Um, that's what we all would hope. So it is, it's an open invitation to get to know me, understand what's important to me, understand that everyone's life is important to me, but those lives who have not mattered, um, our black lives, me being that black life, um, I matter. And I need you to get to know that about me, get to know me so that you can see how much I matter. Well, it really is. I hadn't thought about that, but through Black Lives Matter, I haven't had the opportunity to get to know a lot more Black lives. And yeah. It, 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 yeah, that's a great way to think about it as an open invitation. All right, Dan, roll it up. Words to it. Counteracting peaceful with non-existent displays that so many still need improvements. Yes, when we say Black Lives Matter, recognize it's a movement. Don't be still. Act on it. Change is okay, needed stop. and we want it. So tell me about when you say like. You say stop adding your own words to it. Black Lives Matter. And then counteracting peaceful with non-existent. Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, adding your own words to it, that's just me speaking back to adding the only. Don't put don't put your own your own your own uh, your own thought into it. We're saying it just how we mean it. I'm, I say this all the time. I mean what I say and I say what I mean. I'm saying it just how I mean it. I'm just simply saying that my life matters. So there's no there's no need to add your your own words to it. There's no need to add a only or there's no need to. I feel like sometimes people are, think that I'm saying 
my Black Lives Matter matters more than yours. Well, though you're adding your own words to it. I didn't say all of that. I simply said that my Black life matters. And then counteracting peaceful with non-existent. So, you know, the, the, the largest counteraction to our Black Lives Matter movement has been the Blue Lives Matter movement. Well, what is a blue life? What is a blue life? I keep asking that. Um, what is a blue life? Yeah, the only thing I can think of, and this is this is talking about my age, which I, I it's okay. But back in the day, um, there was this song that said, "I'm blue, Abidi Abidi," some crazy song, right? That's the only <laughs> thing I can think of when I think of like a blue life. Like, what is what is a blue life? And when I say with that, the non-existent, ask, with the yeah, non-existent, like it, that doesn't exist. Stop it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Yeah. A blue life doesn't exist. If you were telling me something like, like, hey, people are saying my life doesn't matter and so my life matters, that I can get down with. I can say, yes, your life does matter because it absolutely does. But a blue life, come on now. There's no such thing as blue life. So it is. We're trying to be peaceful, um, as Dr. King has been, with sharing his words, as Dr. King tried to be. Um, we're still trying to take the peaceful approach. We're still saying that we just simply need to matter. We're still just saying we can't breathe. We're still just saying that that we we want to we want to quit being killed, and we're saying it as peaceful as possible. We're saying it as peaceful as possible, and we're still getting the counteraction of, well, this matters instead. Well, this matters instead. Well, we still need improvements. We haven't come as far as we thought. We still need improvements. That, that's all that that shows me is that we still have many improvements that we need. Okay, Dan, roll the tape. And so when we state that Black Lives Matter, I'm educating that our lives need to matter, all of this melanin and its scars underneath, as a reminder to your amnesia for centuries, listen. In 1619, okay, stop. you begin to... I told you winter that i'm going to be the only one saying okay stop you got you know because i want to stop it all the time to hear hear all your thoughts here but i'm i'm making you stop so uh <laughs> this part i this this line when i read it back was so powerful when you talk about all of this melanin and the scars underneath it as a reminder to your amnesia for centuries tell me about that there is it's no secret that that history has created scars. History has created so many scars for us as a race, for us as a culture. We are, we're full of scars and hurt that we never asked for, that we never imagined. Who could, who could ever imagine? There's nothing in me, uh, I'll go back to this, me as a, a young little girl, there's nothing in me that could have ever imagined that I would have gone through the things that I have gone through, that I've, that I would have been called the things that I have been called, the names that I have been called for simply waking up and existing and having beautiful black skin. Um, I love the skin that I am, I am in, but there has been so much hurt. There has been teachers. I've had teachers in elementary school be rude to me and say rude things to me and I had no idea when you're young in elementary school, you don't really, you know about racism, but you, until you experience it, those are the scars that I talk about until you experience it. Um, until you really realize that you're going to be treated differently because of the color of your skin, the history books, that's nothing that the history books just reading can teach you. It's once you've been called certain names or once you've been looked at a certain way or once someone tells you that you can't sit with them or that you can't share something with them because they're afraid that the, your black is going to rub off on them. That is the scars um, that I'm talking about that have been created as a race on this melanin that we never asked for. And then once those scars are created, we try to act like that it's amnesia. Not we try to act like it, but others try to act like they have amnesia. Now, all of a sudden, uh, we want to forget the pain that's been created. We want to say, don't treat us differently. Don't, don't, be, don't be rude to your, your brothers and your sisters, uh, even though they treated you differently, even though they're rude to you, even though they still judge you based on the color of your skin. You don't treat them like that. You keep being peaceful to them. You keep loving them. That's what we're always taught. You keep loving them. You keep treating them as though they are not 
continuing to create scars on you. Um, those scars are hard. It's hard growing up like that. So we, you can't act like it's amnesia. It, yeah. Yeah, you can't. You can't act like it, it, it did not happen because it did. It well, did. I love how you talk about that, this amnesia for centuries, and then you're going to go and dive into some history and to uh, awake our memories here. Roll it, Dan. See black kings and queens as property. Mr. John Punch had to endure the first round of everything, stripped of his family, robbed of his hopes and dreams. Someone else, owning one's life, became his new reality. And sadly, our lives still remain a debate in society. No choice Let's to stop. mask his identity. All right. So just a little bit of history. You said that I'm going to dive into history, and I think this is super important. 1619. So August of 1619 was the date that the first African slaves are brought to an English colony on board an English privateer ship. So that that was super important to me to put in my poem. We talk about slavery, but if, when I when I sat to think about it in my 29 years um, of talking about slavery, of learning about slavery, and when I wrote this poem, it's been it's been about a year or so now, maybe a year or so now. But when I first wrote this poem, when I sat to think about it, we're not really taught who the first slave was that was brought over. It's as if we just skip over it. And that is that's not OK with me. It's not OK to, to skip over that. It's important that we say his name, just like we say, we say all all of these other names, all of these, all of our fallen soldiers that I call them, um, our fallen loved ones, our fallen community. It's important to say Mr. John Punch's name because he was he was the first person who had to endure this. He was the first person who had to endure that hurt um, and to be stripped away of your family and everything that you thought that you were going to have. I can't even imagine how he felt. I can't even imagine. It brings tears to my eyes um, just thinking about it because I can't imagine how you feel to know that someone is now in ownership of your life. They get to tell you what you get to eat, when you get to sleep and everything else. And they took your family away from you. That's that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow. Well, I appreciate you reminding us of our amnesia because, I mean, it really truly is. I don't know that I had really heard the name Mr. John Punch, and that is something we should learn about, and we should say his name. I agree. So yeah. thank you. Roll it, Dan. We were born this way. Wear this skin proudly every day, so when I say Black Lives Matter... I'm reminding you that colonizers didn't always behave properly, although they called it godly. I need to add this poem to an anthology, not just ideology. Call it an autobiography, but don't write my end. Listen to my rhyme, but don't try to steal my heart's rhythm. Say my name, let it set fire under feet. Let it paint passion in your eyes while I'm alive. Call this book Bone Collectors. Moments that took a piece of me because the next series will feature how we survive over and over again persistently. Okay, stop. Fed us a God. When you're talking about, you say, listen to my rhyme, but don't try to steal my heart's rhythm. What are you speaking to? Hear my words. Listen, listen to the words that I'm saying. Um, Sometimes... Sometimes people like to listen to poetry just because it's rhyme. So many people tell me that they love the rhyme and poetry. Well, listen to my rhyme, but do not try to steal my heart's rhythm. Don't take my breath away. Don't take my life away. I'm, I'm literally saying, listen to me, hear me, see me, but stop trying to kill me. Yeah, in a very literal sense. Don't like in a, both a metaphorical sense, don't steal my heart's rhythm, but also in a very literal sense. Yes. Stop trying to kill me. And yes. as you go, as we are now, you're going to dive into um, some more recent history of, of of black folks who have had their lives taken. Yes. Roll it, Dan. And religion told us to 
swallow it as our own while rebuking our character, color, and freedom with the same tongue. Pray, just pray. In 1863, it was stated that we were to finally be treated equally. Not until 1865, they decided to hear all of our cries. No more chains bound to our fate. Let freedom ring from state to state. Let's fast forward a little. Okay, stop. To my general. I thought that was a really important line. Like, you, I mean, just that you really brought those two years into play where there was the Emancipation Proclamation in 1963, but how it didn't even get out that some black folks in, was it Texas the last place they went, that they were free. It was two years. Two yes. years. Yes. Two years that, um, two years that somebody, that somebody says that you're free and you still have to live in captivity. Can you imagine, can no. you imagine, um, knowing that there's people, your brothers and sisters that are free somewhere and you are still being treated like this. Can you imagine that? I can't, uh, I have to take a deep breath because I can't even imagine that. First of all, I can't even imagine living like that. And I know that times are still hard right now. Um, I know that this is a battle that we're still fighting because it's a battle that I feel every day. So I know that it's a battle that we're still fighting, but I cannot imagine. I can't imagine living in those times. I really can't. I'm so grateful because I can't imagine living in those times knowing that someone else is free somewhere and I'm still I'm still going through this. I'm still getting beat. I'm still getting fed from the bottom of the barrel. I'm still, yeah, this is what I'm still going through. And, but, but the light at the end of the tunnel, and that is strength. That is strength, holding on to the light at the end of the tunnel, even with going through that. That's incredible strength. Absolutely. All right, Dan, roll it up. Generation in 2012, racial violence shook our nation, showed me that a walk to the store while black can be perceived wrong. Going for a jog alone can't be right. Always turns left into something else. Costs more than a few pennies. A price larger than life. In Arizona and some Skittles. To breathe. To sleep. To not fear the ones who swore to protect me. Let's shed light on 2017. Bright plus bullets was chanting my name. I didn't hang my head in shame. Cuffs was no longer just a bad dream. It was brought to life. It flashed before me twice. Let's have a look at 2020. Stop. All right. So I referenced 2012. It's so important that I say something about this line. Rest his soul, Trayvon Martin. Yeah, a walk to the store. A walk to the store while black can be perceived wrong. I've walked to the store so many times as a teenager, y'all. I can't tell you how many times I've walked to the store as a teenager to get an Arizona. It's funny because oh. I love Arizona tea. I love Arizona tea. So if it wasn't Skittles, it was Starburst. I love Skittles. I love Starburst. And to think that my life could have been taken um, on one of those walks, that's a that's a hard pill to swallow just for simply existing. Going for a jog alone, you you can't go for a jog. Um, if you go for a jog in the wrong neighborhood, you, you could end up with someone chasing you down and taking your life, Ahmaud Aubrey. So here we are again, the price, when I say a price that's larger than life, in Arizona and some Skittles to simply want to breathe or sleep. And I, I'll go a little a little further. Then I go to 2017. Um, that's the last thing that I want to touch on. 2017 was was me that I was talking about. Um, in 2017, I was I had pulled into four four homes down from my home into my my god brother. I have twin god brothers and. So their parents' home, um, I pulled into their home. It wasn't that late at night. It was probably like uh, around 8.30 or so p.m. My car was in park. I was in the driveway and I was already out of the car. I had exited my car, closed my door. I saw the sheriffs. They had, we, I won't go there. I saw the sheriffs. Um, they were sitting facing the opposite direction of me. So it wasn't as though that they were sitting like they were going to turn behind me. They were going the opposite direction. So they should have just went past me. And that's what they did. They went past me, but they decided to flip around and 
come and bother with me for what reason, I don't know, but that's what they decided to do. And so I, I ended up with two guns on me, pointed at me, and me knocking on the door, fearing for my life for simply So you existing. were just in a car, uh, they, in a driveway? They, uh, yeah, so I, I pulled into the driveway and they, they passed me. They're going the opposite direction. So I saw them pass me, of course. But then I saw them flip around really, really fast. And so when they flipped around fast, they, of course, they sped up, you know, just pulled their truck over really fast. And they said, hey, they got out. Hey, hey, stop. And I guess it's because I have dreads, right? I have dreadlocks. I think I had a hoodie on. It was chilly. I love hoodies. So I had a hoodie on. So I don't know. Maybe I look like a criminal to them. I actually was going to, so my godbrothers, their dad, He's a police as well. So it was a police officer's house that I was going to, funny what? enough. He's a detective now. And so he saw everything unfold. He saw everything unfold. Um, he's a reason that I'm probably still alive right now because they were. They were ready to unload on me. They were yelling at me saying, stop, stop. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. I'm being still. I didn't do anything. Get down on the ground. Well, no, I'm not going to get down on the ground like a dog. I didn't do anything. I, I'm literally doing nothing. So I just kept knocking on the door until he came out and luckily he came out and, you know, he's like, Hey, he stood in front of me. He's like, Hey, what's the issue here? Whoa. Yeah. They, uh, they were not very nice. Whoa. They were not that's... very nice. So that's 2017. When I talk about 2017, that was me. That was me in that poem. It created this... some, some really bad long lasting anxiety in me. <laughs> wow. I can only imagine. Yeah. And it's the sort of thing that will, that will never happen to me, you know? That is the nope. reality uh, nope. that, that we live in. All right, Dan, roll it up again. Yeah. Queen Taylor was resting so that she could serve her community essentially. And still we find ourselves past day number 156 that she still has no justice. When I say Black Lives Matter, I'm saying that I want to simply taste every flavor of my rainbow life. Just let me live long enough to do so. When I boldly state Black Lives Matter, it's an invite. I never wanted it to be about black or white. I just wanted y'all to realize that the only proper answer is an agreement. Winter, that was so powerful. Is there anything else you would like the listeners to know about that poem? Thank you so much, Kevin. I, I really appreciate that. The biggest thing that I wanted anyone to know is just the poem itself. I kept things, you know, a lot of poetry has really deep underlying meanings. And I, I kept this poem really surface level, if you will, because I wanted people to just really hear the poem, just really hear my words and really hear, just meditate on what I was saying. I, I didn't want you to have to think deeper or, or try to think about what I was saying. I just wanted to say it. I just wanted to say it and for people to be able to listen. So I just hope that, that everyone listening just takes the time to truly listen to the words of the poem and just know that, that the movement is about getting to know us, getting to know us and just knowing that we matter as well. If you want to add any words to it, right? I'd rather you not add words to it. But if you want to add any words to it, can you add the as well to it? I'll take as well. I'll take as well. I'll disagree. <laughs> so if you would do me the the honor of letting me hear another one of your original pieces and perform that for our listeners as they get to hear uh, another piece from you on the way out here. Yes, I would absolutely love to. Um, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to share another poem with you all. The poem I'll share with you today is called Home. So this poem um, actually won the Ogden City Pride Festival 2018, I think. One of those years, 2018, I believe. But this poem is called Home, H-O-M-E. I tried to write about home, but truth is it's never really felt like anything I thought it was supposed to be. Excitement overtook me initially, wondering what home, H-O-M-E, felt like to me. Doors that could open to safety. See, every time I returned back home, H-O-M-E, I had a hope of mending everything. So home meant that I had been broken. Be yourself. Two words I had always hoped for, yet at home they would never be spoken. 
H-O-M-E. I had a hope of mending everything. Yet every time I returned to the place or person I called home, it was like being in an alternate reality, a broken heart trapped in a bad dream. Home is a safe place. At least that's what they showed me in GTA. A change of clothes, check. Smiles, check. Real love, encouragement, acceptance. Straighten up. They forgot the disclaimer, not appropriate for audiences different or gay. So I left that home where I grew up to seek a real home with someone else. They say that home is where the heart is. So I left empty handed and wrote it off as heartless theft. I tried to find home in anyone that showed me what I thought was real love. Each time having the same ending, the same story, the same love lost, so I thought. I said, the next time someone asked me what home meant to me, I'd just say hopes or memories even. Truth is, I didn't want to tell them hopes of mending everything because then I'd have to explain how I felt like a failure, how my heart was still broken, although I had mended everyone else's. I never wanted to explain fear of the truth that I knew. Home starts with loving yourself. With self-love came true freedom. Instead of searching for home, I began to pick up the pieces of me. Pen to paper, I started to write again, to tell my own story. You see, home is moments I choose to keep as my memory. Home is where I stand out. I can speak up and I can truly be me. Pieces is slowly mending. With self-love comes true freedom. With freedom came writing and my words start to flow from an unfamiliar place. Love became my shelter. At home, I should feel completely safe. Home is where I stand. I come to home to my family on this stage, receive love and acceptance. I've even been told, just be you. H. O-M-E, hopes of mending everything. Eventually, you do. Thank you. Wow, Winter. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I had a wonderful time talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being able to share with you all. Thank you for the work that you're doing, Kevin. You are near and dear to my heart. You and your team, you all are amazing. Um, and it's super important, the work that you're doing. So please keep it up. Let me know if there's ever anything that I can do for you all. Seriously. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, rate us on iTunes, and share the podcast with a friend. That's how we help spread the goals in which we're trying to accomplish with this show. Special thanks, as always, to August the Great for our theme music and Decker Yazi for our artwork. I did it! I did it! And Dan Martinez for being our producer. Really appreciate all the hard work that he puts in on the back end of this. Thanks, everybody. Community Spread is a Deep State Media production. It's produced by me, Kevin Lundell, and directed and edited by Dan Martinez.